we move to our time of the service in the Word of God, in a study of the Word of God. Grab your Bible and turn to Exodus, Exodus chapter 20, chapter 20, that is our home, it's been our home for the past couple of weeks and will be for the next few weeks, Exodus 20, if you are visiting here, uh, another warm welcome to you, and don't have a copy of God's Word, just look right in front of you, in the rack in front of you, you will see a Bible there, you can turn to the second book, the 20th chapter, Exodus 20. Last week, we began our study on this important chapter and portion of God's Word. So, of course, there's a look at the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments, or as they are referred to in Exodus, the Ten Words, the Ten Words, Ten Words, by way of recap, that we noted that we need to approach carefully, we need to approach them correctly. And we addressed all in our time, a matter of key introductory matters critical to our understanding. We really just introduced this section, but we needed to deal with matters that were really crucial to our understanding. We mentioned first and foremost that these words reveal their source. Do you remember that? Their origin. Look at verse 1. It said, And God spoke all these words, saying, God spoke all these words, a divine unearthly origin. A divine unearthly origin. These words are God revealed, like Yahweh has been doing throughout Exodus. Remember, in a burning bush, revealed through signs and wonders, revealed, and now here on a mountain, revealed. Through these ten words, Westmount, we see God revealed his nature, his character. Next, we commented on how these words are the fountainhead of the Old Testament law. These words like a founding, timeless constitution or charter, if you will, these ten. Then the full 613, we talked about that, the temporal bylaws. You have the ten pillars, if you will, and then the 613 temporal bylaws that span all the way into numbers, all specific to that period of time. And we're going to look at some of those in Exodus and some of those bylaws are the finer bits of the Mosaic law. Again, we'll get to them in chapters 21, 22, and 23. We also remarked on how these words are both national and personal. Do you remember that? National and personal. This is revealed in the corporate but singular you found in these words. You see it there throughout chapter 20. A corporate but singular you. The collective you to the nation and the personal you to each citizen. These words, this divine law has implications both vertically and horizontally. It's important too as we dig into the actual words today to remind ourselves that these ten words are law, no doubt, but the law of liberty. The law of liberty. They are the roadmap to the freedom of living God's way. That's so important. The roadmap to the freedom of living God's way in all his expanse. This, we noted last week, rebukes the stereotypes of a restrictive God and a restrictive law. No, that's not what it is. No, as we'll see starting this morning as we dig in, these words are freedom unlike any today. And this makes sense. Remember that each commandment represents some aspect of the likeness of God. Even more, obedience to God's law gives expression to who we really are, which is beings in God's likeness, beings in his image. Naturally then, obedience to God's law results in our true freedom. And there it is, and we're going to come back to this later. Obedience to God's law results in our true freedom. That echoes the truth that you find in Psalm 119.44. The psalmist says, I will keep your law continually forever and ever. And then you get a result. Here is the result. I shall walk in a wide place. That's what the ESV says, or the King James, or New American, if you have that, say liberty, that's good. And even the NIV has freedom. Those are all good renderings. 
Do you see the connection to walking in, keeping the law of God is equated to freedom? Beloved, let us not miss the liberty found in these words as we delve into them today. Finally, we mentioned that these words arrive not in a vacuum, but in a context. Simply, these words on Sinai arrive after the works in Egypt. These words, these laws to the people are given after the deliverance of God. God's work, God's hand, and His alone to initiate and liberate sovereign grace first. Then God's law, God's words, His divine words to live out that deliverance. Remember, it's not just Sinai after Egypt, but also Moses after Abraham. The original sovereign promise to Abraham, remember, 400 years earlier, initiated by God. That promise, that covenant still stands. There's nothing new going on here. These words summed up in the ten words simply flow out of that promise, that original promise. God first promised, then God delivered on that promise. God chose and redeemed his people, then... He said his words before his people, words to live by as his redeemed people. And this makes sense. This makes sense for redeemed people. And those words, church, remain before us today, this divine law of God. For sure, not under the administration of Moses and all those finer time-stamped bits, But these ten words in the eternal character of God they reveal, here it is, point to, for God's people of all time, the character that they and we are called to live out. We are called to live out the character of the God who redeemed us. That's it. And so these ten words demand our attention today. As we are awash in so many words... So many words awash today. With that, let us give them our full attention. Look down again at Exodus 20. We're going to consider them in full and then really get into the first two words. Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words saying, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Father, as we consider this text, we pray that you would illuminate it for us. Lord, help us receive it, give us understanding, and may we live this, your very character, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So those are the ten words. God willing, today we'll expound on the two you find at the top. And speaking of order, let's make a comment on the format of these words. This is no small detail and will prepare us to receive them just as God has delivered them. You might have already noticed or learned, depending on your experience or church experience, 
you notice, look at the words. The words are ordered with the first four that deal with our relationship to God. Did you notice that? The first four words, commandments, deal with our relationship to God. And then the next six are horizontal, dealing with our relationship to others. Again, many of you have been taught that, know that, and that is indeed obvious and true. And what we need to comment on here is the implication. This tells us that our right and proper relationship with others flows from and follows first a proper relationship with God. Do you see that? This makes complete sense. The horizontal flows out of the vertical. This is the pattern of not just the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words, but of all of Scripture. We would say it this way. True morality is founded on reverence to God. True morality is founded on reverence to God. In fact, that's the context of law giving in Exodus, is it not? Deliverance, position with Yahweh, and now here, here is the law. Here is how you live out being my people. This pattern is not just found with Moses, by the way, but it's repeated and expanded with Christ. With Christ's first coming, he made this order and pattern clear. Consider Matthew 22. We read a different version this morning in Mark 12. When asked what the greatest commandment in the law was, this is what Jesus said. Listen in verse 37. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then listen to what he says in verse 40. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Christ said, and did you hear it? All the law, all of it can be summed up in two commandments. And don't miss the order. He said, number one, love God, and number two, love neighbor. Same idea we see in the ten words here. And by the way, this not only sums up all 613 of the Mosaic laws, but it sums up these ten words, and really it sums up the theme and message of Scripture to God's people. Again, this is the pattern of divine law, and we must let that sink into our hearts as we receive the ten words over the next few weeks. This is the pattern. The child of God, you Christian, cannot live right horizontally in life, in your relationships, unless you are first living right vertically before God, revering Him first. Beloved, this truth has so much supporting evidence. There are just lists and lists of experience that I think we all can give to these things. I think now of the source of many problems. Is this not true? The source of many problems, we seek out a horizontal fix. We want steps. We want helps. But what we need really is vertical alignment. We can move the chess pieces around all we want, but if this is not right, nothing else will be. That's the pattern of Scripture and of life. And that crucial order, of course, is only affirmed and reinforced throughout the New Testament. Think of Paul's epistles, right living with others, Romans 12 to 15, Ephesians 4 and 6, follows right position with God, Romans 1 to 11, Ephesians 1 to 3. Think of our Lord's prayer, daily bread, forgiving others' debts flows from what? Hallowed be your name, Matthew 6 verse 9. Christian, before you consider dealing with life's many problems and trials, you must first consider God's position in your life. It's worth repeating. Before you consider dealing with life's many problems and trials, because we want to run headlong into fixing them, don't we? But before you do, you must first consider the position of Yahweh in your life. Westman, I trust this will become plain as we embark on the first table today. We'll deal with this, the first table, the first four commands and words over the next two weeks. All right, that's, again, our introduction to this text. Let's begin with the first commandment, first word, and we would deem it this proper theology. Proper theology. Look at verse 3. It simply says this, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. 
God's first word here is just that. And it begins, how many, with the same way that the rest do, with a prohibition. Many of the other words begin this way. Look at it. You shall have no other. Later, you'll see it rendered this way. You shall not. And some versions will have thou shalt not. Those all reflect an emphatic negation in the original. In the original words given to Moses, that is grammatically a firm prohibition. And this is what we'd say, in fact, it's a permanent negation. You shall never. That's permanence. Never. And God says here to his newly delivered people, this first word and rule of life and indeed the foundation of all to come. You shall have no other gods before me. And what we need to consider in context, in historical context here, is the weight this would have had to Israel, the impact to God's people. Remember, they were freshly delivered from Egypt, the land of many gods, many of which we looked at when we studied the ten plagues earlier in Exodus. Israel for years was immersed as a polytheistic culture, Simply means many gods. That's what polytheistic means. Gods for everything. And we looked at this in our study earlier. God's people lived in a culture of competing gods, of rival gods, of an order of gods. It would have been common for the ancients to hedge their bets, so to speak, and give many offerings, just making sure they catch it with the many gods. That was the culture Israel was plucked out of again. A polytheistic culture, a multiplication of gods. And here, as God outlines what it means to live as this delivered, set-apart people, God says proper theology is monotheistic, one God. That's proper theology. It is living before one God, and we would say this, the only God. Theology, which means words or discourse about God, as we've learned in some of our classes, Proper theology must start here at this first word. There is only one God, and we will add emphatically only one true God. Muslims and Jews today, of course, are both monotheistic. We know this. But we ask, monotheistic, but of which one God? What is the one God that is recognized. Their theology does not center on the God of the Bible in front of you, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament, the God of Exodus 20, the God of Deuteronomy 5, the God of Isaiah 40 to 46. Consider this, Isaiah 46, verses 8 to 9. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. You know, some might agree with that, that Old Testament verse, of course. But what of this when you think about the foundation of this first word and first commandment? We again have recited part of 1 Corinthians 8 this morning, but listen to the context We begin in verse 4. There is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. One God, one Lord, Jesus Christ. Now that word is proper theology. Any theology that does not confess the one God, the Lord Jesus Christ, is simply not true. That's helpful, beloved. And it logically brings us back full circle to the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. If for no other reason, and here it is practically, there are none. There is no other God. There is only one. Israel, you need to understand that your discourse with other gods is folly because they're fake. They don't exist. Even when we think about the reality or the unreality of other gods, we think of Israel, we think of us, we think of today, we think of humanity. This desire and attraction and and hooking to False gods 
again, we would say, as old as the Old Testament itself. Yes, the idea of many gods or pet gods was not just an Egyptian novelty. Long before Egypt, note this, we see Rachel hiding household gods in a saddle. Do you remember that in Genesis 31? She had to make sure those things were hidden and they were taking them with them. Later in Genesis, we see her husband Jacob, get this, having to instruct his household to put away the foreign gods that were among them, the text says. Incredible. What do we learn from that? Yes, beloved, left to ourselves, without grace, without deliverance, without law, we too will look to hedge our bets and turn to our household gods. We too will look for a false theology of the created rather than the creator. Church, I could apply so much here. There's so much that I would be tempted to say because the application is rich of a monotheistic, one God theology lived out. But the application cannot be said better than the old voices. Sometimes the ancient voices just say it best. And I want to read one from the 18th century. I've read him before. His name is George Bush, again, the theologian George Bush. But he says this so well. And just listen to this. This sums up our improper theology. I'll quote him in full. I quote, As God is the fountain of happiness, and no intelligent being can be happy but through him, whoever seeks for supreme happiness in the creature instead of the creator is guilty of a violation of this command. Whatever it be that sets up a rival interest in our souls, absorbing that love and service which belongs to the true God that is another God before Him. Consequently, the proud man who idolizes himself, the ambitious man who pays homage to popular applause, The covetous man who defies or deifies his wealth. The sensualist who lives to gratify his low appetites. The doting lover. The husband. The father. The mother who suffer their hearts to be supremely absorbed in the love of the creature. All come under the charge of transgressing the first commandment. I think we get this. We understand a theology that is absorbed in creature rather than creator. We have all been there, beloved. We've all been there and we understand what this means. Church, let us heed this divine law of God that his people have always been called to in a toxic spiritual sea of many gods and so much improper theology. God says to Israel here, you shall have no other gods before me. God is and God alone. That is proper theology. That's one, that's the first word. Let's look at the second, proper worship. Proper worship. Now, at first glance, theology and worship may seem like the same thing. Maybe you're saying, well, this seems like we're going to say the same thing. And in one sense, they do overlap and deal with the same subject matter. However, where theology is about the who, there it is, the who, Worship is about the how. Worship's about the how. Proper theology informs who the true God of our word and life must be. Proper worship informs how we worship this true and only God. I trust that makes sense. And in the second commandment, the second word from God, we see this addressed. Look down with me now at verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Idol construction has always been common. It's always been popular and idol construction is always lucrative. No matter what era you're in, idol construction is big business. Big business. Of course, in view here are the ancient big booming economy of carved images. That really was an economy driver back then. Those that made idols of wood and idols of stone. That's what 
is behind the carved image there. And of course, those carved wooden stone idols we're very familiar with when we read our Bibles. The wooden carvings, the statues, the created objects of veneration. Now, we normally associate those with the pagans, and of course, that is true. Pagans and idols often go hand in hand. However, note this, God is not addressing pagans here. You see that? He's not addressing pagans here. Pagans do that, but that's not who he's zeroing in on right here. He is giving the law of God to the people of God. And what God is addressing here in the second commandment, the second word is this, the worship, the reverence, the devotion given to something else other than Yahweh. Yes, this means we can recognize, study, and even call on the true God. Don't miss this. We can recognize, we can study, and call on the true God. That's proper theology. This means we can have proper theology, all those ducks in a row, all the while giving him improper worship. Many places we can go to illustrate this, but let's stick to the context of this book. Turn ahead to Exodus 32. We're just going to stay close for this, Exodus 32. We have looked at this account before at Westmount, so I won't belabor the point this morning. This is, of course, is Moses on the mountain, and there longer than the people want him to be, and they go restless. And what really resides within them starts to come out. Let me just read the account, give you the context there in chapter 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now note this in verse 5. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. This is the created altar, the created idol. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. These are God's people making a likeness of God on earth. Do you see that? A calf. These are God's people attributing to this likeness, do you see this? Offerings to this likeness. And then look in verse 5. This is so crucial to our understanding. Aaron builds an altar before it, before the calf. Then the proclamation. Right? Now, I won't comment on the sincerity of the Israelites here. We're just going to stick to the text. Just look at this proclamation. Verse 5. Tomorrow shall be a feast to the calf. No. Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Did you see that? That is right theology to the Lord. As if we know we should be orienting to the Lord, but the very wrong way to worship. Do you see that? That's wrong worship, improper worship. And before we leave this passage... Just a preview on how God feels about that. This is important. Just a preview. Look at verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. Look at that. What does God say? God says, leave me alone that what? My wrath may burn hot against them and consume them. Again, may I remind you, these are not pagans. These are God's freshly redeemed people. And in the wake of that improper worship, he says, leave me alone, Moses. I need to spew my wrath on them. And beloved, listen, that's not over improper theology. What did Aaron say? Let's go make a feast to the Lord. And every scholar and scribe says, yes, let's go do that. But the question is, in what way? Proper theology with improper worship. 
An improper worship market, because the text does, and let's not miss this, improper worship draws the anger of God. Why? Turn back to Exodus 20. Why? Why this response from Yahweh? Turn back to Exodus 20. Why? Well, we are given in this table, in these words, in chapter 20, we see the reason for God's response in verse 5. Look at verse 5 with me. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for, and that's the because, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. There it is. God says, and this is the reason, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. The root of that word in the original means zeal. Very much is loaded with emotion and passion. You think of the zeal of Phineas, right? That something that shouldn't be happening is happening, so he throws a spear in the, the Baal worshippers. And we have, when you think about jealousy, I think you're thinking of this now, you have a lot of negative connotations with jealousy. Is that not true? Jealousy is one of those bad words. And in many senses, we would say, when it stems from sin, it is. Right? Selfishness, fear, control. Jealousy is sin, and that's wrong, and that's bad. But we're talking about Yahweh here who's jealous. So we know none of those things are in view, right? With God, this is proper. Proper. In fact, if we want a human illustration, there's none better when you think of covenant than the spouse in the wake of adultery. There's a right jealousy there. I want you to think with me for a moment of the right theology or the right spouseology. The marriage certificate, the marriage vows, even the changed name, the theology's in order, right? It's proper. But what about the worship? In the other hand, are the text messages, the pictures, the evidence of the cheating exposed. And what that wronged spouse feels in that moment is not bad. It's true and it is proper and it's called jealousy. Because the worship, the devotion was somewhere else in that marriage. Because they may be married in theory, but the affections are elsewhere. That's marital jealousy. And we get that, don't we? Some have been through it. And you know what I'm talking about. Two created beings, sinners pledged together. They're cleaved together. And what is it? It's a covenant. I will always be faithful to you. And yet, the affections demonstrate something else. Jealousy is certainly warranted there. And we get that. And we would never question the spouse's right to feel so. We would never question that. But what if? Then that's a human example. But beloved, I ask you, what of God's jealousy? What of his, the creator, the elector, the deliverer? What of the covenant made to his people in perfect faithfulness? These are not two sinners binding each other together. This is a perfect holy God. And what of the adultery by his people to that perfection, to that faithfulness, through their unfaithfulness? What of that? What is amazing is that God only visits the iniquity of such unfaithfulness. What's amazing is that it's only to the third and the fourth generation. That's what's amazing. That's the extent of the damage. We don't need to get into what that means. We studied this last summer. Remember Ezekiel 18? The soul that sins shall die. Don't need to die for the sins of your father, your grandfather, for many of us, praise the Lord, right? The soul who sins shall die. Corporate responsibility, corporate apologies, no, none of that. This here, what God is referring to, is not referring to punishment for the sin, but consequence of the sin. You remember that? This is not the punishment of the sin, this is the effects and the consequences, and this makes so much sense. Because this is not so much getting out the abacus to tabulate when it's over. Okay, third generation, I'm as, okay, fourth generation, just got to wait a little bit. No. 
And not that as much as to convey the sense of the effects of the sin. Listen, you know this is true. Again, these illustrations jump out of life. The sinning father, the repeated unfaithful father, let me ask you, do his sins affect his children? Of course they do. Dramatically, tragically so. And you know those kids may adhere something and take up something, and what will they do to their children? And that's the way it goes in humanity. The sinning mother sets the tone of a home for her children and her children's children and theirs. Beloved, listen, here it is. This is what improper worship does. It's not just a matter of method and mode. It's not just a Sunday morning. It's all of life improperly worshiping Yahweh by worshiping something else. It has effects. This is what, beloved, idolatry does, and this is why idolatry must be rooted out and destroyed. Idolatry kills. These are the consequences and effects of offering and sacrificing to any but God. And you should be asking right now, you should be, what if I worship? Is it improper? Is it idolatrous? You're asking that question. And it's an important question in light of this second word, this second command. And a couple of just brief helps here. We won't linger. Just a couple of brief helps for you this morning. A couple of diagnostics. Number one, improper worship is unsatisfying every time. And it always leaves you looking for a return. Do you know what I'm talking about? You always want more. You're looking for return. It's consumeristic. It's Dead Sea-ish. It takes in. It wants more. And it's never satisfied. That's one way you know you're dealing with something. When you have an itch that you cannot scratch spiritually, there's your light going off. This is as obvious as food under the auspice of fellowship or getting together. Worshipping food. And it's as subtle as a church service. What did you get out of that? What did that do for you? Beloved, this kind of unsatisfying nature of worship is helpful for us because it guides us into those valleys, into those arteries, if you will, that are in our lives that we need to root out. So number one, improper worship is unsatisfying. Two, here's another Improper worship is sensual. It's sensual. What do I mean by that? It is driven by your senses. It's driven by comfort. It's driven by pleasure. That's how you know you might be dealing with something improper in your worship. This is why we love, oh, we love gut feelings, don't we? We love somehow to just feel it. There needs to be an abdominal response to feel something because we're sensual. This just feels right. This is why keeping safe, staying safe, everything about safety plays because we want to be and we will do whatever. It's amazing the things that we sacrifice for temporal safety. And it's about relics. Those of you like myself brought up in denomination or movement, the Roman Catholic Church, it's all about relics. You know what this is. There's an object there's a thing. Make sure you've got a little one in your car, a little one around your neck. Make sure you have a little pet this, a little bit of that. It's the relic. And soon, before you know it, you sprinkle a little superstition in it, and you have to have that. It's got to be there. We've moved into idolatry. But here it is. This is why it's so insidious. God is not a God that we can bring down to our level. Does that make sense? We want to do that, don't we? We want a pet God. We want to dress him up and have him right beside us all the time. But God is not a God that you can bring down to our level. And in times like this, we rejoice that he's not that kind of God. He's above all of these things. So let's not lower him. Amazingly, after the golden calf incident, when Moses intercedes for the people... Yahweh has this back and forth with Moses. Moses says, let me see your glory. And one thing that Yahweh says to Moses is this. Moses, you cannot see my face. You can't. That's for glory. 
You cannot see my face. Church, our God is a jealous God. Our God is a jealous God. And to seek something that is only of God and something else rightly draws the ire and wrath of God. And here when we say God is a jealous God in the second command, it looks at this and it says, in spite of your theology, it asks this question, what of your worship? In spite of your theology, what of your worship? Now, those are helpful to diagnose the problem of idolatry and worship. But what of a remedy? Maybe you're sitting there thinking, what of a remedy? I have idols in my heart. How do I mortify them? How do I kill them? Well, the answer to that is in verse 6. Praise the Lord. Look at it with me. Verse 6. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is so good. God doesn't just confine the implications here to a few generations. Look to how many? Thousands. Thousands. In other words, longer than you can imagine. In other words, more than kids or grandkids. We're talking legacy. We're talking something that truly lasts in the economy of God. This is what we really want. We always go for the lesser. And look, what's the trigger here for that? Look at the end of verse 6. For those who love me in what? Keep my commandments. That's it. Simply, directly to God's people. The simple, enduring, rock-solid, timeless answer to so much of what ails us, obedience. But we don't like that answer, do we? It's too legal. It's too rigid. It's too this. It's too that. We don't like the answer. But it doesn't take away from the fact that it is the answer. Obedience. How do you combat idolatry? Beloved obedience. Put God first, make him first. Even more, if I can press this, beloved, obedience is your worship. Obedience is your worship. Listen to me. You worship God through your obedience. That's the sweet aroma to him. Obedience. I can find no other plain way to say this. Be intentional today. Be intentional tomorrow morning, Monday, when you wake up. Be intentional this week. Read, listen, and obey. Read, listen, and obey. That's your worship. Give Him your love. Give Him your obedience. That's your worship. And you know something amazing happens when you begin to obey God. Your idolatry starts to fade away. Because you're obeying God. And you recognize there is one God. And there's only one way to worship that God. And it is through a life, this was the message to Israel, to be obedient to Him. It's amazing. Give Him your love and obedience. In fact, that's what verse 6 says. Look at it plainly. Which, by the way, look at the second word for love there. It says, those who love me is very much our love to give. This is again where words matter. That second word for love is not the first word for love in the original. That is the love that we can muster in our own efforts, which, listen, is not much. We don't have much to give him by way of loving him. We do not have much to give. But it is something to give. And we need to respond. It is. Your love is something to give to Yahweh. And God demands that you give him that love and devotion. And in fact, he makes that claim on everyone that would claim to be his. He says, love me with all your heart. So Christian, my charge to you is this. Give that to him. Give it to him. He is worthy. He is do it of that proper worship. Put off the old. Put off the excuses. And put on obedience to what God calls you to do. And do so keenly aware of what God has already given to you. That is the beauty of being obedient to God. It should have been for Israel. How much more easy should it be in our human sensibilities to obey one that's delivered you from bondage? Right? That says that we're keenly aware, Christian, of what God has done for us. Obey. And we're keenly aware of what he renews and lavishes on the obedient and the faithful. Look, we're not talking about a vending machine or a genie. Do this, you get that. That's not what we're talking about. That's not the economy of God. We're talking about life, 
goes the way that it should be when you walk in his ways. It just does. It's like putting gasoline in a car. It's going to run better than water or milk or anything else, right? You run the motor vehicle the way it was designed to operate, and what happens? A lovely ride. And it's the same way in the Christian life. Obey him. Obey him. And look at this. This is your bedrock for obedience. Look at verse 6. We talked about two words of love here. And this is one. I know, ladies, you looked at that this week. Steadfast love. You know what word that is? Hesed. It's a different word. That's hesed. Covenant. Loyal love. That is love that cannot feel this. If you want sensuality, feel this. Love that cannot be broken. It will never be broken. It doesn't matter what you do. Hesed love will never be broken. You cannot break that bond. Isn't that amazing? That's Hesed love. It's unfailing love. That is love unlike, and hear this, unlike any love that's being presented to you today. You say, yeah, but I love neighbor. I know you do, but that's not Hesed love. You say, yeah, but I love my relatives. Yes, I know you do. That's not Hesed love. You say, what about my kids? They have love for me. Well, that's actually, if you're to move into other languages, there's a different word for that. And you say, well, what about my spouse? I love myself. Well, that's not Hesed love. That's not what we're talking about here. This is the love that only God can give to his people. Covenant, loyal love. This is steadfast love, and here it is, beloved. You so desperately want this love from other people. It's a source of many ails, isn't it? Why weren't you faithful to me? Why did you treat me this way? Why have you done that? Why have you done this? It's the love that our heart cries out for, but here it is, we never get it. We run after lesser loves at the neglect of the great Hesed love. No human being can promise and guarantee love to a thousand generations. I ask you, who on this planet can offer this kind of love? No one. Yet, improper worship, here's the catch. It gets our hook in our mouth. It seeks such love. It wants to be satisfied in something temporal. It wants sensuality. Improper worship seeks lesser love in the hobby, in the job, in the friends, in the comforts, in the local church, in the kids, in the grandkids, in the spouse. Seeking a lesser love in all the wrong places. Those are good things. Hear me. Those are great things God has given. But you will not find said love there. That improper worship seeks such love, but it never receives it. And that is why proper worship, here it is, and I pray this is clear as we close today, that is why proper worship must flow from proper theology. Proper worship must flow from proper theology. Because ultimately our worship, our obedience is driven by God who is proper theology. And this word about God tells us that God loves with a hesed, a steadfast, unfailing love. And we ask, what manner of love is this? Many have asked that question. What kind of love is this? It's love that sent a son so that we could see the Father. Isn't that amazing? Love that sent a son so that we could see the Father. John 14, 9. Whoever has seen me has seen who? The Father. God the Son. Jesus Christ. What kind of love is this? It's love to send a son, an only son, to redeem an enemy. That's the kind of love we're talking about. Not love because something kind was done to you and you're moved to give back that kindness. That's not the kind of love of God. The love of God lavishes love on an enemy. Maybe you. It's the love to crush that son, to crush that perfect son by subjecting him not just to torture, not just to being mocked and spit on, but subjected him to the wrath of God. 
and said, I will show you my love by sending my son, son and placing my wrath on him to be bore for you. Love that raised that son from the grave, thereby bringing many sons to glory and eternal life. Yes, this is love. And it is the only love, beloved, that can save your life beyond the grave. It's the only one that can guarantee this kind of faithfulness. If it's true for a thousand generations, how much more for eternity? How much more? Friend, you know of no other love like that. I know you don't because there is none. The love, like the love of God the Father, love vast and beyond measure. That's the love we're talking about here. Love to look at your life and sin. No matter how deep your sin is, no matter how dark your works are, and instead, and instead of looking on that darkness, looks on the blood of his son and looks at you and says, dwell with me forever. Jesus Christ, the love payment for rebels like us. That's the love we're talking about. And maybe you have never known that love. It's quite possible you have never known love like that. Maybe you've known it. Maybe you've known it. Maybe you professed it. But maybe somewhere you've lost your way. And maybe you're right now knee deep in the wilderness. Like these Israelites. Either way, we ask, will you receive the Father's love today? Will you turn and receive his love? Your time is short. There's no question about it, right? Your time is short. You're on the clock. Time is running out. It's going to be over soon. Your time is short, but his love is long. Turn to him. Father, we thank you for the grace, the amazing grace that it is to have love like this. And God, we beg and we pray that we would turn and receive that love, maybe a renewal of that love, maybe for the first time an acceptance of that love. God, help us in these times to do that, to be reminded of this deep love that you have for your children. And God, may we cling to it. May we live it. In Christ's name we pray.